Well, good afternoon, everyone. So, leadership. And when you say that word, I'm sure when Peter was talking about leadership earlier, all kinds of pictures came into mind. Maybe some positive, but I'm assuming that it's easy to be critical of leadership, that lots of negative pictures and thoughts of people came into mind. You know, especially the fact that you've had a general election just in the last week. So, general election aside... um, as Peter mentioned, we're talking about leadership uh, for the next few weeks to set up the process of a church recognizing its own leadership, that we're going to go into a new phase of the church. And those of us who have been here since the beginning of, of the, the church, uh, phases is kind of a language that we used quite a bit earlier. You probably haven't, we haven't mentioned it very much recently. So we're actually going into phase four in September. So that means that we're currently in phase three, and there was two other phases prior to that, right? So phase one was September to December of 2013. And that was a time where we just kind of, a, a group of people came together on Sunday afternoons, uh, not, not really planning that we were going to have church on Sunday afternoons, but we came to just pray and read scripture and have God convince us not to start a church. We thought, hey God, we want to start a church in Chippenham, but... You know, you got to talk us out of it. And I think after a few weeks, we kind of felt like this was going to—it was going to be a church. And so we started thinking about what, you know, what were we going to be about? What kind of church are we going to be? And we started thinking about, uh, you know, vision. You know, that we all want to be transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. We started putting our handbook together. Started thinking about what do we believe and how is that going to shape doing a church? What leadership should look like, for instance. Uh, and then phase two was. Uh, kind of just family time is what we called it. We're just kind of learning to do church and, you know, doing all this stuff. And so it kind of goes okay. And also kind of being church together, kind of giving, getting over lots of, well, bad church experiences. And also kind of just learning how to, what does it mean to be Trinity Chippenham before we start inviting all different kinds of people in. And after the, about a few months of that, so August, September of last year, we said, okay, let's go to phase three. Let's, let's stop looking at ourselves. We feel like we're ready to go and start inviting people in. We put a website up. We've done out, uh, you know, things to kind of reach the community and say, hey, we want to be a church that's part of the churches of Chippenham. And let's start, let's start doing the things that a church normally does. But in all this, we've had a startup team. A startup team was just to kind of like... As, as Peter said, we're just kind of helping get this church started, but we didn't want to have us kind of appoint ourselves as the leadership or the pastoral team of the church, because that just doesn't, well, that's not biblical. And, and part of the reason why we're having this teaching time is just so that as we go through this process for the next few months, we would have an idea of what biblical leadership is. And biblical leadership primarily is the church recognizes its leadership. And what we, we put in our handbook, which I think is also biblical, is that there's a few things that we want biblical leadership to do, which is feed, lead, care, protect, and equip. So you're going to hear us say this really fast a lot in the next few, months, few weeks, okay? But feed the church. This is that we, want, we need to have leaders who are able and desire to feed the church with a trustworthy word of the gospel. We want people to lead the church, get cast vision, talk about church being a movement, not just a club where we do certain things, but impacting the world, not just chipping them, but the world. And that being based on the sound doctrine of the gospel, not just anything. To care, to care for the needy. And by the way, everyone in this room is needy. We all have certain needs that need to be met. And we want people who desire to meet the needs of the needy. 
with the idea of protecting also the sound doctrine, the, the word. How, how do we protect ourselves from division and uh, false doctrine and all kinds of things, false teachings? And we want people who are able and, and capable of impacting and protecting, uh, well, impacting false doctrine and protecting the church from that. And then obviously equipping others to do the same so that we can see the spreading goodness of God go from one generation to the next. So that picture that we had, you know, reaching down and lifting somebody up, that's the idea of equipping people to do this. So kind of going back to the idea of leadership, what, uh, well, before I say that, we'll just say a couple other things. So today what we're going to focus on out of all those five things is primarily protect the church, protect the church from false doctrine. When we look at a letter uh, called Titus and that's so those main, we're going to kind of jump around Titus, but that's the main focus. And what we're going to see is that church leaders are given really for the sake of of the faithful, the believers, and for the sake of the gospel. Really easy. Church leaders are given for the sake of the faithful and sake for the gospel. The idea is that we want, God has given leaders for the church to live out the gospel and so that they have credibility to equip others to live out the gospel and then have the ability to protect the church from anything getting in the way of that dynamic. That's, that's kind of the reason why we have church leadership. So when you think of church leaders, we get back to that. So when you think of church leadership, or just leadership, I should say, what comes to mind? Well, I think there's a few things. I'm assuming that with the election, politicians come up. Now, those of you who voted for the, the eventual winners, I have a funny feeling that you're probably still slightly dissatisfied with political leadership. You know, uh, you know, there's, they, you know, what, why do we, why are we dissatisfied with politicians? Because they say one thing and then do another, and it seems to be it's cross cultural, really. So I can just say it's I have voted for people who have promised to do certain things, and when they get and they win, and you're excited about it, and then they start governing, and you don't like them anymore because they're not doing, they're doing the exact opposite of what they promised, and it's because the reality is. Politicians, what is the foundation of their leadership? Well, it's platforms, manifestos, as they call them here. It's kind of scary for Americans to say manifesto. I think it was communist manifesto. But uh, anyway, so manifestos, but it seems to change, right? Like, what, what are the motivations for the leadership? What is the foundation for their leadership? And really, it's probably power, money, privilege, maybe some other backhanded deals. But, you know, I'm, I'm slightly jaded about politicians. What about your bosses, your employers? Uh, maybe you have some really great employers that are, that are looking out for you. They want you to have a great life and all kinds of things. Maybe you've had bosses that, that have used their power and the fact that they pay you to kind of pressure you and manipulate you to get to do uh, things that you want, they want you to do. Just, you know, I, I, Dave right here, is, he's laughing because he's a, he, li- he works in the bank. So he, <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's the case. How about churches? Ooh, church leadership. This is a chaos. I mean, some churches have solo pastors. Some churches have, uh, you know, pastoral team. Some churches have no pastors. Some uh, churches have presbyters or ministers, you know, because they're part of a Presbyterian thing. Some people have, some churches have popes. Some churches have archbishops. And the reality is, is they, they could, I'm assuming that a lot of people have been hurt by church leadership. But you just, you know, read the, the news and you get negative connotations of church leadership. I don't, and maybe some of us have been hurt by that and have been harmed by that. But why is that the case? I think it's because they actually have left the cornerstone, the foundation of why we have church leadership. They've left the sound doctrine. They've left the trustworthy word. And therefore, this is where things go wrong. 
Um, and so we're going to keep on focusing on the things that church leadership should be like. It should be, uh, you know, people who feed, lead, care, protect, and equip people. So maybe some of us who have had those difficult situations kind of go, well, maybe we don't need church leadership. Uh, maybe we just kind of, yeah, we don't need it, we can move on. But I, I don't think that's the way that God's worked. And so the question of why church leadership is so important. And we're going to look at a letter in Titus. If you want to open to that, you can. We're, uh, Titus, the letter is on page 998 of the church Bibles. And it's, it's talking about really the nature of the early church. And the early church, you think we kind of are worried about what could happen, but the early church was facing incredible things, incredible odds, things that are going against it. And I used to, uh, used to often say as an undergraduate studying Christian history uh, that it was miraculous the way that the Christian church spread and grew the first 300 years. And my college professor said, no, 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 it's not miraculous. You know, it can be explained. It's, it's a lot like Islam. You know, Islam kind of spread over the same, amount of, the same territory, took over the Arabian Peninsula. They kind of spread about the same amount of time. So, but there's, two, there's a dramatic difference between the spread of Christianity and the spread of Islam. Islam spread because, well, it had power. The leaders of the religious movement were generals. And they exerted their power throughout the Mediterranean world and took over the, the known world at the time. And, but the reality is, is they weren't, in Christianity, the spread, it wasn't from, a, up, you know, from top bottom kind of idea. The pressure of the first 300 years of the church, where they were, most of the time, it was illegal to be a Christian. People were being killed and tortured, and they were being, you know, burnt the way to light, you know, nighttime parties. They were being killed in arenas and being eaten by animals and all kinds of things. For Ten times the Roman Empire uh, said it was illegal to be a Christian. And the message, the people believed that Jesus rose from the dead, grew. And it grew, and it grew. Even at that time, most of the first 300 years, we, the church, didn't have the, the privilege of having the Bible. It, it wasn't fully gathered together. And we didn't have creeds. We didn't have, uh, you know, creeds or councils saying what, what was true Christian doctrine and what wasn't. And you think about the first 30 years of the church, there was, well, they really had very little scripture at all. Because it was still being written. And, you know, you kind of think, you know, like they maybe where we're going to look at Titus, they might have had a gospel in the 60s AD. They might have had a gospel. They might have had a couple of letters from Paul. But most of, most of them didn't. What was so important, because the church was given leadership to, for the sake of the faithful and for the sake of the gospel. And this is exactly the background for this, the next few weeks. Here, just a second. I think my jumper might be covering up the microphone. So, Titus was written from, to, to Titus from Paul. And, and Titus was uh, leading a church in Crete, which is an island just south of Greece. And he was writing it in prison, uh, in prison under the rule of the uh, Roman Emperor Nero. And he was facing death. And he was writing to a church who was facing the very same things that the whole early church was facing. Mostly false doctrine and division in the, the early church. And so Paul is writing to Titus saying, you need to take care of this very reality. Take care of the division and confront the false doctrine that's being taught. 
And Paul gives the answer to our question, why leadership? Why does God give leadership to the church in, his, in the introduction of his, uh, of his letter? So, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faithful of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before ages ago, uh, began, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from uh, God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That's a really long, dear Titus. But we, and we could spend an hour easily just on the first three verses of this. But what I think I want you to take away is, why is leadership given? Why is Paul made a servant, an apostle? It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. It's for the gospel. It's for that sake. And the gospel accords to godly living. And it's based in the hope of eternal life. And eternal life is based in this, that God has promised and planned before the creation of the world that he would save people for himself. And we'll see a, a, a people for, for his own possession. And this, these themes right here are going to be the basis for much of the, the, the letter to Titus. And, he, and Paul is also saying this very basis for my leadership is the basis for your leadership. And it's the basis for the leadership that Titus is supposed to appoint for the church in Crete. And that's what he says in verse 9. So verse 9 he says he, that leadership or uh, Titus must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that he, are, that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who can uh, contradict it. He's saying that leadership needs to know sound doctrine, hold firm to it, I think live it out, and therefore be able to equip others with it, and then at the same time contradict false, uh, false doctrine. And I think one of the questions that we should be asking at this point is, well, what is the trustworthy word? Uh, and there's a couple of places that could, you could go for that, I, either the end of chapter 2, but I think the best place for this is actually chapter 3, starting in verse 3. So why, why, or what is the trustworthy word that we should base, well, church leadership, but base our lives in? He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of any works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So the trustworthy word, it... It's simply this, that we are saved, we're reborn, we're justified by grace, and we're sanctified, renewed, transformed by grace. We're not, trans, we're not saved by grace and then transformed and sanctified by our own effort. He's clearly saying that. He says that right here. We were saved, not because of works done by us in righteousness. That means those that have been saved those have been justified by grace, 
It's not that he saved us because now we do good works in our righteousness that we have. That's not it either. God loves us and likes us regardless of, well, because of, regardless of what we do, really. Because that's, that's the reason why he saved us. He saved us while we were still, what, foolish, disobedient, led astray. All kinds of things. So we're, doing righteous works don't save us. And doing righteous deeds on our own effort don't sanctify us. But what actually does is grace. And what is grace? He says he saved us by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace. I think this is a picture of grace. That God the Father is saving us by pouring his love on our, or pouring his love or pouring the Holy Spirit on us, who's washing and renewing us. And what, who's this done through? It's done through the works of Jesus Christ. This is, this is the trustworthy word, that we're justified and sanctified by grace, by faith, not by our own effort. And so what does this look like? What does this look like in life? I mean, he says, right, so emphasize these things in verse 8, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves with good works. Well, what are, what are good works and what does it look like? Well, I think he answers that in chapter 2, 11 through 13. He says, For grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live a, a self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the idea is that he's redeemed us and saved us so that we will be people who are pleased with him. And so as, as we're pleased with him, we're zealous to do things for him, to please him. And so, but I think when we read words, uh, ungodliness, worldly passions, uh, self-controlled, upright, godly lives, we have things that come to mind. So, uh, let's think about ungodliness and worldly passions. So I think we probably typically think, you know, Amsterdam kind of living, reckless spending, sleeping around with all kinds of different people, you know, making terrible choices, maybe playing video games nonstop on end, 15 hours a day for weeks on end. I mean, there's actually a story of a guy, this is, I didn't plan on saying this, but there's a guy in like Hong Kong that died from a clot in his legs because he, he played video games for 36 hours straight and then kind of fell asleep at a table in a restaurant and then they, he died but anyway but ungodliness it, the way that we said it in the states where i lived before they said this uh don't uh, drink don't smoke don't chew and don't go with girls who do all right that's ungodliness all right but and then so what we think what is godliness we think godliness is well you know going to church on sundays maybe preferably per, you know maybe early in the morning on sundays prefer you know preferably but Going to church, doing, uh, reading your Bible every day, doing, saying the right things, you know, keeping the law, you know, doing, you know, just, you know, the picture perfect kind of idea of what a Christian should be. That is godliness. And what's amazing in this is uh, Paul might not actually be affirming that idea. He has a completely different version of what ungodliness is. It includes, you know, the whole chewing and don't smoking and going with girls who do, maybe. Um, but it's far more. And this is exactly what the problem is in Crete. And this is the very thing that he wants church leaders 
what Titus to be ready to confront. False doctrine. And that's one ten through 16. So he's going right at the idea of what godliness is and ungodliness. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for a shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This, is, this testimony is true. <laughs> Paul doesn't hold it back, does he? Um, so, for instance, the first line. So, there, there, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, I'm sure for a lot of us here, that is kind of un, that's con- concerning. You know, what kind of part, you want to be a part of like the, the political movement called the circumcision party? Or do you want to go to a party that's like, woohoo, circumcision? I mean, you just don't, uh, just, that's not, anyway, that's not what it's going on here. So the idea is in the church, there are three, like three groups in the early church, okay? So you have Gentiles who heard that Jesus was the son of God and he said a lot of crazy things and then he died. But then he rose again, and he appeared to lots of witnesses. So everything he claimed about himself, they said, if you can raise yourself from the dead, I'm going to believe in him for life. And a lot of Gentiles said, that's, that's, that's the message. And let's think, the early church message was really, really basic. It was, they called the rule of faith, which was that they believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, who was born of a virgin, who died under Pontius Pilate, and on the third day rose again, and that they believe that you, once you believe that message, you should be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was that easy. And then in that church, you had Jews doing the same thing. They said, Jesus is the Son of God. He rose again, and I'm going to trust Him. We are saved by faith, and we are sanctified by faith. But then among the Jews, there's another group called the Circumcision Party. We're Jewish Christians who said, yeah, 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 yeah. We're saved by faith. We're justified by faith. But in the Christian life, you have to keep the whole law. The way that you live the Christian life is by applying the law. That means festivals. You can't eat certain things. You know, the Jewish kind of ideas. You have to be circumcised if you're Gentiles. This is what you have to do. And what is Paul calling that teaching? He's calling it rebellious. He's calling it empty talkers, like these people are deceivers. And they're doing it for selfish gain, and it's causing all kinds of problems because within the church, families or maybe uh, house churches in the, throughout the island were dividing over this. Some people are listening to the Jewish Christians and saying, that's the way to go. And others are saying, no, 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 that's not the gospel. That's not what we were saved by. We're saved by faith. We're sanctified by faith. This law thing, Jesus came and gave us a new covenant, a new testament. The old is gone, the new has come. So what's going on? And, and Paul's saying, look it, these people are no different than the world or the stereotype of the Cretans. There's actually at this time, they had a verb called to Cretanize. And to Cretanize is to lie and cheat for your own benefit. So, and it was written by this guy 600 years prior to Paul who said, yeah, Cretans, they're, they're, always, they're always liars. They're, they're wild beasts. Cretan." We think Crete didn't have uh, animals on the island. They kind of get rid of them all. So the only people that are, well, the only things living on the island are, are people. So they're just wild animals. And they're doing all these deceptive things so they can lay back and live like gluttons. 
to Cretanize is this. And he's saying, this testimony is true of what we would think godly people are. The people who look right and do all the right things and they're doing it by their effort. Paul is saying these people are liars and cheats and deceivers. And they're false teachers. Because I think is the amazing thing is we think is if someone's teaching from the Bible and they're teaching in our, in our tradition that they're teaching the right doctrine. And what Paul is saying, that's not the case. And just as a church historian, I know that's not the case. You can go to a church that says we're Bible-believing Christians and they will say you must keep the law in order to be sanctified. And you have to persevere in this in order to prove that you're truly one of God's chosen people. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. I mean, I don't want to be that blunt. It really is. Because he's saying it right here. Just read it. You read the commentaries. And they're all saying, oh yeah, yeah Judaizers, are, they're offering the law into they're offering the moral law they're offering the ceremonial law they're offering the sac- well not the sacrificial law but they're offering all the law there's that when they think law they're thinking the big broad picture and paul is saying this is something that you should sharply rebuke so church leaders are given to sharply rebuke but this is the idea of care so we're thinking of care so to sharply rebuke not to say that they're wrong not to kick them out not to to do anything but actually to do what in verse 13, he says, they should rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in their faith. To win them. To bring them back so they don't devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And I think Paul has this idea from a passage in Isaiah. Who's, Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. if you want to look later. He says, basically, the Lord goes, there's these people who do all these sacrifices. They do all these rules and laws, but their heart is far from me. They just keep rules from men. Well, nobody really knows what Jewish myths is, but I think it's going back and connected to the idea of this keeping the law and keeping tradition within the idea of I've been justified by faith in Christ. So he's saying, sharp them, rebuke them sharply so that they will turn to the proper faith. And the proper faith, the trustworthy word, is that we're saved by faith and we're sanctified by faith or by grace or by God's work. And, and just to make it really clear, what he's saying, he, he, he gives a grand picture, uh, 15 and 16, with, of this very idea. This very day, and I think he's thinking of, again, what we've, we've been spending a lot of time in Mark. In Mark 7, Jesus says that we're transformed from the inside out. Or we do, everything we do is from the inside out. From our thoughts and our heart, what we value affects the way that we think, and from the way that we think affects actions. And he's saying, this, what we do does not make us who we are. So doing good things doesn't make you good people. But rather being made good, being made righteous, or made pure, that means you do pure things. And everything you do will be pure. But if you do it the other way around, no matter what you do, it's always going to be defiled. So he says in 15, to the pure, all things are pure. And let me just say it again. So if I've been made pure in God, and I, the Holy Spirit is washing me and renewing me through Christ, and we've been justified by grace, by faith, and God has promised and planned and chosen us to love us, he likes us. And everything we do should be in light of the fact we've been made pure in him. So if we love God, we're going to want to love him, and everything that we do is going to be in line with that love. It's going to want to please him. So love God and do what you want. Because it will be pure. 
Now, the times that we're not, we're living for ourselves and we're living in our flesh, we're not loving God, we're loving self. And odds are, that's going to be defiled. By, well, by definition, it will be. Because that's exactly what he says with the rest of this. He says, but the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So if people think that I can make myself right by my own effort, or if I can sanctify myself or make myself more righteous or more pleasing to God by what I do, by pulling up my bootstraps or pulling up my socks, that everything I do is defiled. Nothing is pure. And nothing is pure because both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They're dead in their hearts. They're, they're, they're still trying to live autonomously by, from God. They're trying to, still trying to live by themselves rather than being utterly dependent on God for everything. So he's saying, look, they, everything they do, their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. They're talkative. You know, you, you read uh, John Bunyan saying talkative. He kind of just talks about, oh, how much I love the Bible and God and church and all these kind of things, but then he really doesn't do any of them. They're just talkers. They, they claim to know God, but they don't really know God like in a relationship. They may know lots of things about him. Because, but they deny him by their works. And you see, he makes a, a distinction between works and good works. They do lots of works, but they're doing it from an undefiled or defiled and unbelieving heart, unbelieving mind and conscience. So everything they do, all their works, they den- they're denying what he's promised and what he's done. So therefore, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so what, this is amazing. So what does it mean? Well, first, let's think about this. What does it mean for us as individuals? Because when I think about this, you know, just early church, they don't have a lot of, maybe they don't have all the letters. They don't have a lot of information, but they have, they have the sound doctrine. And they're easily pulled away from it, from false teachers. But the, the reality is, is, I have a false teacher in my heart. I don't know about you, but me, I have a false teacher in my heart. So thinking about rough days as being a dad. I can read a whole bunch of books, and I have. But I can think, okay, I need to do A, B, C, and D. And I, oh, I've got to be calm. I've got to do this. And I'm just, oh, just going to do this. I got, okay, getting ready to go in the door after work. And I'm just going to be a good dad. But isn't that a false teacher? That's a false teacher in my heart. Saying I can be a good dad on my own. Rather than saying, okay, God, I'm desperate. I am absolutely desperate. I want to be a dad who doesn't provoke my kids to anger. I want to be a dad who doesn't get in the way of my kids seeing who you are as a father. I want them to love me because the way that I have loved them and the way that that you love them. That, I, want, I want to be a dad like that. I want to be warm and kind, calm in heart and calm in speech. That's, and I'm assuming as, as a husband and as a father and as friends and as brothers and sisters, that if you could try to be a good one, a good one of those relationships on your own, you're listening to the false teacher in your heart. Because God saved us and he's cleaning us and sanctifying us by faith and by grace, not by our effort. And so, what are those things? Where do we need people to, to bring us back to say, God, we need you? Because that's the trustworthy word is found in, in chapter 2 and 3 of, of this. That we were dead. That God has saved us and purified us so that we could be zealous for good work. So we could be zealous to please him. And see, now, we're thinking about church leadership. 
What about us as a community? As a community, I desperately want us to be a people who recognize people or or men to lead this church who are going to live for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the faithful. That's, those are the kind of men that we want to recognize and say, yes, we need people to protect us. We need people to care for us. We need the people who are living it out so they have credibility to actually do this. That doesn't mean they have it all together. It doesn't mean they're flashy or cool or well-spoken or educated. I don't think that's the kind of leadership we're looking for. That doesn't negate it. But what we're looking for is leaders that can come from anywhere who are living out the gospel, the trustworthy word. That we've been justified by faith. We've been sanctified by faith. We've been justified by grace. And we're being sanctified by grace. And living that out. Equipping others to do it. And protecting ourselves and the church from division. And the, the reality that there's going to be false doctrines among, false people on, uh, among us. So let's, let's please God with our leadership. Let's please God with our lives. Because he's, well, first loved us. So we can love him. He's first glorified us. And given us glory in Christ that we might glorify him. And he is he's so pleased with us. And I just pray as a church and as individuals, we can please him and be zealous for him. Because he's working in us and he's so good. Let me pray. Father God, uh, we want to trust you because you're good. You've made your loving kindness known to us in, in Christ Jesus. That he died on the cross while we were still sinners. That we... Uh, And he rose from the dead. And and you have given us life. You've made us heirs according to a great promise. That all that you've given the Son, everything that you have, you've given to him. And now the Son has given that to us. And may we not uh, try to please you more by working ourselves and making ourselves better. But rather trusting that if we love you, we'll love what you love and hate what you hate. And we ask for you to give us, the, the, I guess, our eyes lifted up to you. And and that we would be drawn to you. And that your beauty would beautify us. And we pray that you would uh, help us as a church to recognize leaders who are going to live for the sake of the faithful and for the sake of the gospel. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen.